Philippians chapter number 2. We want to look at verse number 12 through 18. Um, as we examine Philippians chapter number 2, uh, let's read this passage together. Uh, verse number 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have al always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work uh, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. As I had mentioned at the start of the service, as we think about this passage, we should really um, orient it all the way back to verse number 27 of chapter number 1. Uh, verse number 27 of chapter number 1 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Um, and after that particular uh, statement, Paul then begins to develop that concept. What does it look like to live uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel? And part of that is then brought out um, through that hymn of Jesus Christ uh, in the beginning part of Philippians chapter number 2. And really now he is coming back to that. That's why he says all the way back in verse number 12, Therefore... My beloved, and you say, where do we take the therefore from? We go all the way back before the hymn um, to verse number 27 of chapter number 1, um, where he's picking up that concept. He's talking about living in a manner worthy of the gospel, uh, that he's connecting those concepts, he's bringing uh, that forward. So I would simply encourage us this morning to live in a manner uh, worthy of the gospel. How does Paul call the church to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? It, it looks very individual, personal, uh, but yet he's giving this to the entire church. And so in that sense, it's very corporate. Um, and he's calling them to respond um, as, a, as individuals within a larger group setting. Um, and so this is what he wants to call them towards. And he really gives three actions. Um, there's three major imperatives in this section. It's one of the reasons that we had a hard time splitting up verses 12 and 13. There's so much in that. Could have just easily done a service on that, right? Uh, and instead, though, I wanted to convey the idea that these are all part of really the same uh, kind of trajectory or thrust. And so what are the three actions uh, the three actions he calls them to is strive, shine, and then sacrifice. And you'll see them as we begin to work our way through it. But let's begin with this idea of strive. Um, if you want to go away from the alliteration and you want to just put the actual word, maybe you would put obey. Or maybe you would put work out. Um, both of those would be very textual, very, uh, very clear that is there. But I couldn't figure out a W that would go all the way through, right? Um, and so instead we went with uh, strive. And I really have to give credit to Pastor Joel for that. He's the one who came up with those three S's. 
uh, and so he deserves um, all the credit for that. Uh, Philippians 2, 12-13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work uh, for his good pleasure. Oh boy, what a jammed, packed statement. Uh, there is so much um, in this. Um, how do we begin to tear it apart? I think we start out by simply recognizing the call to obey. Obey like Jesus obeyed. Uh, let's not miss the connection um, here to the previous statement. Verse number 1 through 11, uh, we have been called to the obedience that Jesus had. In fact, verse number 8, I think I put it up here, I didn't. Oh, I did, it's right there. Uh, verse number 8 uh, says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so he's really taking that obedience that was found in Jesus Christ, and he's using that as the segue um, to bring forward this idea uh, for these believers in the church of Philippi, where he's saying, you also should obey the way that Jesus obeyed. And so we would say, obey like Jesus obeyed. We are called to this obedience. Now please, let's understand, this is not a burdensome thing. Was it a burden for Jesus to obey the Father? Of course not. It was a delightful thing. Is it a burden for you and for me to obey God? Of course not. It is a delightful thing, right? Um, we ought to embrace it that way. This is not a burden. You know, those who would call you to something other than obedience are actually calling you to act not like Jesus, but rather like Lucifer. And um, we are called to this life of obedience. It is a joyful thing. Jesus followed the will of the Father, and it was best for him, and it was his joy. And friends, that's what we are called to, too. We ought to embrace uh, that obedience. Obey like Jesus obeyed, but he also calls them to continue um, in that obedience, to continue in it. He says, therefore, my beloved, uh, as you have always obeyed. You know, Paul did not have an issue with the Philippians as if they were not obeying. He wasn't, he wasn't looking to address this because they were disobedient. He is rather acknowledging, you have been following in obedience, I want you to continue in that. They were obeying, and he's honest to acknowledge it. Uh, in fact, if we think about the situation of the people in the church of Philippi, they, they had some very difficult circumstances. Things had started, and we've spent some time in this particular series talking about what that looked like for them. And so if you just think back um, to how the church of Philippi started um, and the persecutions that they were facing from outside of the church and the persecutions that they were facing from even within the church, um, and you say, okay, was it going to be challenging for them to obey? But yet they had. Uh, they had continued to obey. And so Paul's not looking to rebuke them. He's looking to, encouraging, to encourage them. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel requires obedience. You know, we could simply ask the question, in your life, do you seek to obey the commands of Christ? Uh, if someone was going to look at your life, would they say, now there's a person who seeks hard after Jesus. Now there's a person who desires to obey. Just examine that in your own heart. Boy, that's kind of challenging, isn't it? To examine in your own heart and to say, do I want to obey Jesus uh, with all of my life? That's what he's calling them 
to do. So he says, obey like Jesus obeyed, continue in your obedience. But we also need to recognize that obedience is the product of faith. Uh, it, obedience is the result or the product of faith. It doesn't replace faith. So let's consider this from the passage. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now Paul here is talking about sanctification, not justification. Um, so this is sanctification on display. Work out your salvation, not work for your salvation, right? Um, he's not talking here about doing something in order to deserve to be saved. He's talking about the fact that as people who are saved, their salvation needs to continue. So that's why he says, work out your own salvation. Now we get nervous whenever we use words like work and salvation in close proximity. <laughs> because it's like, okay, is there a not involved in this? Um, because we want to make sure that we are not working for our salvation. And that is understandable that we get nervous about that. Christianity is the only religion that argue, argues that you cannot earn your salvation, that it's entirely of God. And what a blessing that is. Uh, it is uh, shockingly true. In some senses, it's a paradigm shift. Nobody starts out life believing that such a thing is even possible. Or that anybody would ever call us to that. But that mind flip is necessary. Uh, where we recognize that works come as a result of being saved, not as a means to get saved. Amen? What a tremendous blessing. And so we could, we could source this in so many passages of Scripture um, as Croft references, but it's really hard um, not to just go to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Um, and so this is the constant refrain of Scripture. The constant refrain of Scripture calls us to recognize that we have been saved because of the work of Jesus, but we are saved to do good works. Um, and that's something that Paul is repeating here in Philippians. And of course then, there's tension here between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But in fact, both are strongly emphasized in these verses, and it's up to us to keep them in tension. Now a person may, for example, so emphasize the truth that God does not force us to act against our will, that as a result, grace is restricted to a little more than spiritual aid. The idea would be God will help us along, but it's really up to us. God helps those who help themselves. Uh, that's the idea, right? And, and there are some that would embrace that, but they're focusing too much on one side of that. Conversely, the fear of, of legalism may lead others to a more or less passive understanding of sanctification. The idea there is our responsibility is simply to rest in God's grace. Let him work in us. Let go and let God. I keep wanting to say amen after I make those phrases, but I don't want you to amen those phrases, so I can't say it. 
uh, that's the other side, right? And so the text, this text by itself, it puts these in juxtaposition, right? It puts them in contrary force to each other. Um, where you have one against the other. And it doesn't take away the emphasis of either one. Uh, it says God is totally sovereign. And it says you are totally responsible. Uh, and it puts them in contrast to each other. And it's, it's where we have to live. The point here is not merely that both the human and divine are stressed. It's that in one and the same passage, we have the strongest biblical expression of each element. Where he lays it out as hard as he can. It's really a beautiful thing. Uh, and we would, I would summarize it all, and, and that's point C, that obedience is the product of our faith. Our obedience comes as a result of our faith. But then we should also recognize that obedience brings great pleasure to God. Um, there is an element where God is desiring this. Look again at verse number 12 and 13. Verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, this is not that hard to understand. It just might be difficult for us to believe. Um, let me try to illustrate this. Consider a good mentor at work or a good teacher at school. Someone who is genuinely interested in you doing a good job. So this is not somebody who has been put into the training position at work because nobody else would take the job, right? This is somebody who is like, they live and breathe training, and they are concerned for you, and they want to see you understand how to do the job well. And so this person is training you in the job, and there are many complex and intricate aspects to the job, and patiently, this mentor trains you, they invest in you, they even talk to you about it after work hours, and they wisely identify even small areas where you're not understanding best procedure, and then after weeks of training, you're put into a position where you need to perform the task without this person's guidance and they're watching as you perform the task what do you imagine your trainer feels when you do your task well great pride great joy great pleasure because they have done that okay now consider then the work of God in your life God looks down and he sees that at your heart you are a sinner living in rebellion against him. And he recognizes that by yourself, you will not turn to him. And he loves you enough that he refuses to leave you in that state. And so he instead actually does something radical. He comes down in human form and he actually changes something inside of you. He isn't just teaching you to act differently. He's reforming you to be different. He changes you from the inside out. He works in you, um, and he changes your will so that not only do you do the right thing, you desire to do the right thing. What an unbelievable amount of effort and passion and focus and personalized attention. Furthermore, it's not a one-time adjustment. This isn't like a, like a week-long training course, and it's like, whoop, you're on your own now. This is something where God is constantly doing this work in your life. And why does he do it? 
Okay, here is, here's why he does not do it. He doesn't do it so that he can stand back and go, I wonder if he's going to fail and I can't wait to hit him with a hammer if he does. How foolish would that be? God is looking to do all of that so that he can rejoice in your successes, in the fact that you are not turning away from him, in the fact that you are now, your heart is different, you're turning towards him. Dear friend, if you're a believer, God rejoices to see you obey him out of your own willful desires. What a joy that is. He delights in it. And so that's why he says here, uh, that's not the right verse. That's why he says here in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He delights in it. Let me give you one more aspect of our obedience. Our obedience brings great pleasure to God and our obedience is God's glory. It is his glory. Uh, and this is a natural outflow of the picture that I just painted. Um, but it is his glory. If you were to if you were asked to fill in the blank, fill in this blank. We obey Christ with blank and blank. What would you put in? We obey Christ with blank and blank. What would you put in? What do you think? What is that? Faith and obedience. What else we got? Joy. Love and admiration. Right? I mean, these are all wonderful things that we would fill, fill in. What does Paul say? What does he say? Work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. <laughs> and it's like, wait a second. That's not really how I think about working out my salvation. We obey Christ with fear and trembling. Ah, oh, that sounds fun. That sounds really encouraging. Obey, can, can I encourage you that it actually is? Because that fear and trembling is not the kind of fear and trembling that we would look at and go, okay, we're obeying Christ because I'm scared of him. This is the idea that reminds us of his glory and our weakness. You know, what Paul wants us to do is he wants them to look upon this process with awe because it's God who is at work in their life. God has personalized this. He has reached down and he is doing this. Hey, if you're a believer, then God is at work in your life. And you should look at that with fear and trembling, not in the sense of, oh, man, I hope God doesn't hit me with something, but with the idea of God, the awesome, unique, only God is at work in my life. That, that is something that should just blow our minds. Uh, and it, what should it do? If, if we look at that and we go like, okay, God is personally invested and involved in my life, what should that do? That actually motivates me, right? It's like, if that's the case, if God is active in my life, then what do I want to do in response to that? Have you ever had a coach or a teacher that is uber talented and then they begin to focus on you and you're just like, I can't believe that they really think that I'm capable. That's the idea. God is pouring his attention into you. That's the idea of what he's doing. It's an awesome thing. And so the point is that while sanctification requires conscious effort and concentration, our activity that we engage in, it doesn't take place in this 
legalistic spirit with a view to gain God's favor, favor but rather in a spirit of just humility and, and thanksgiving, recognizing that without Christ, we can do nothing, and so he alone deserves the glory. John Murray, uh, a commentator, he puts it this, this way. This is a great phrase. I should have put it up on the screen just to try to burn it into our minds. He wrote this, the more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. Okay, let me say that again. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. Uh, let, me, let me say it differently to try to drive it home. The idea is that as I obey Christ, as I grow in my sanctification, as I follow him in obedience, the more I do that, the more I ought to recognize and see that it's really God who has given me both the doing and the willing of that. And so he deserves all the glory. And so that at the end of the day, whatever level of holiness, sanctification, God has brought me to, he is the one who has been doing it all along. He deserves all the glory. And this is what Paul is bringing out. Uh, that's why he brings it out so strongly. What remains for us to glory in then? And the answer is nothing. God deserves all the glory. Strive is our first word that we ought to embrace. The second is shine. Shine. Um, we see this here in verses 14 through 16. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in a day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Uh, Paul really moves here from the general, kind of like the work out your own salvation, a general call to the specific, where he says, okay, what does this mean for you Philippians? And he says, let's be very clear. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And he gets very clear, very specific about it. Uh, why is he doing that? Um, he is calling them to stand out. Uh, so my mind went to one of these is not like the other, right? Uh, and so I thought, well, let's throw a couple memes up there. One of these is not like the other. Can you see which one is not like the other? Nope, they all look the same. It's not the tall one. That's not what we're saying. <laughs> one of these is not like the other, right? One of these is not like the other. There's just way too many cat things on the internet. So I apologize for that. How about this? Day 27. They still have not realized I'm an owl. <laughs> One of these is not like, is not like the other, right? Um, okay, let's get off those. You know, what does this specifically look like for the Philippians? He calls them to not grumble and dispute. Why is that, why is that such a big deal? Because friends, can I be clear? Grumbling and disputing is a mark of a sinful nature. 
Grumbling and disputing um, is one of the things, as Pastor Bernie read uh, from Exodus, it's one of the things that set Israel apart. It should have been the other way. Israel should have been set apart as people who did not do that. Instead, they demonstrated they were just like everybody else because they were grumbling and complaining. Um, and as the passage in Exodus explained, that was really a grumble and a complaint against God. Um, so rather than being a, a light, a beacon that people could look at and go like, man, one of these is not like the other, um, they ultimately looked at him and said, they're exactly like everybody else. Uh, and Paul is calling the church at Philippi to the same kind of thing. And, and by virtue of that, he's calling us to the same thing, right? Because it's like, what is it that causes me to grumble and complain? It's, an, it's a lack of understanding of God's sovereignty, right? It's a lack of understanding that he really is in control. It's an unwillingness to be content with, the, with that which he has given me. Um, it's a desire to have my own will, not God's will. Uh, you know, you have all of these things that converge um, into a very clear uh, response that's there. Am I saying that, you know, within the church, nobody should ever um, have a different opinion? That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that Paul here is making an allusion to the children of Israel where they were supposed to say, let's find ways to disagree that reflect God rather than reflect, reflect our own sin natures. Uh, and and this, is, this is really a, a similar call to us as well. What would it mean for us as a church to not grumble and complain? Well, we're a congregationally run church. Of course we're going to disagree. We have like 300-some bosses. <laughs> uh, of course we're going to disagree. Uh, the question, though, is whose agenda are we pushing? Okay, that, that becomes the central unifying or disunifying factor. And if I'm pushing my agenda, if you're pushing your agenda, we have an issue. But if we can all agree on what God's agenda is, then there's unity and we move forward. Uh, and so he's calling them to the same a kind of concept. But think about what that would mean in your, in your personal life. Have you ever applied that kind of frame of mind to your personal life? What, what in your life might need to be adjusted so that you're not grumbling and complaining? Would you be known as that? Is that something that's true in your life? Uh, that you would be viewed by others, by your own self, as a grumbler, a complainer? What are you embracing that is so wrong from that standpoint? Uh, Paul here is calling them to shine forth uh, in a way that is going to draw attention towards a different mentality. This is living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. If the gospel has really changed us, then we ought to live in such a manner. Because we ought to be living for the gospel. Uh, and that should be true in our personal lives as well. Uh, one of these is not like the other. But there's also another powerful truth in this passage, and that's the concept that what we have is the offer of life. I'm looking again at this passage. He says here, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Um, so to shine... Uh, involves holding fast to the word of life. Now, it's possible that this holding fast is, could, also be mean, could also mean holding forth. 
Um, so the idea, idea might be, if we think about this, we might think of holding fast as like being protective, right? So it's like, I'm going to take the word of life and I'm going to protect it and keep it safe. I'm going to hold fast. That isn't what is meant at all. Rather, it's saying that the word of God is the thing that is shining forth. Um, that it is the word of life itself. So the idea, rather, is that it's the word of life that Paul is calling the Philippians to grasp and to hold in that way. They're to cling to it. Um, it's the word of life that ultimately forms their witness, their shining. Because what they have is something that others don't. They have the word of life. It's really weighty for us to consider this. This Bible, the truth of the gospel, is what every human who has ever been born actually needs. It's the thing that will change them. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually within the language as well. The genitive is one of origin. So it is the word that creates life. Uh, it's, it's almost, it's supernatural, right? Not almost, it is. So the Word of God has the power to create genuine life in others. Do you believe that? I mean, you think about the difference that this can make in someone's life. And as friends, we have the opportunity to shine this forth. To be able to be unashamed of the power of the gospel. To say, let me tell you about that which will change your life. It'll change your life. It's like, what a joy that is. What an unbelievable gift that is. When you talk about a life that's worthy of the gospel, right? A life that is lived in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. We're talking about a life where we are unashamed to say, let me tell you the truth of scripture. Hey, can I just encourage you that you do not need to be an expert in apologetics. You don't have to be the best debater. You don't even have to have an evangelistic plan memorized. Now, all those things are good things. I'm not throwing shade on those things. Those are good things. But if you're none of those things, you still have the word of life. And you can share that with people. And you can say, hey, let me tell you the truth about Jesus. That's living in a way that the gospel calls us to. The gospel says, you're changed, you should tell others how to be changed. Boy, it's that simple, isn't it? And you say, what if they do? What if they don't? And I'd say, what if they do? What if they don't? <laughs> it's okay. Tell them the truth. Let God do his work. Let him use the word. It's an offer of life. This is the second thing that he calls them to. He says, strive. You want to live a life worthy of the gospel? Strive. But he also says, shine. The third that he calls them to, went too far, is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Verse number 16 through 18, the last part of verse 16. Verse 16 says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad 
and rejoice with me. Uh, when we think of sacrifice, we ought to think of sacrifice as a response. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, right? The mercies of God. He's built the first 12 chapters, the first 11 chapters of Romans to talk about the mercies of God. And then he gets to verse 1, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. We've talked about the mercies of God. He says, I appeal to you by them. What does he say? Present your bodies as a what? Living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And this is the same language that we find here, um, as he says there. Uh, he says, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So Paul here is saying, the Philippians, uh, these believers, he says, your lives are a sacrifice. Um, he's pointing that out. And their sacrificial lives are a response to what God has done. Uh, it, it's appropriate for them uh, to give up their lives as a sacrifice for everything that Jesus has done. And friends, you and I are really in the same position. Uh, we ought to embrace the same. Um, that we say, I have died with Christ so that I might live with Christ. Doesn't that sound very Philippians? Um, and that's ultimately what he's calling them to do. Um, that he says, listen, you ought to live your life because Jesus died for you and he redeemed you. He saved you from an eternity in hell uh, that you ought to live for him. This is a, a good and proper sacrifice. And we ought not shy away from that. There is nothing better than that, truly. Um, who is it who owns your life? Sacrifice ought to be a response. But it's also a joy. It's a joy. Because Paul says here, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so Paul here talks about this offering up of the sacrifice, and that's the life of the Philippians. And then he says, let's take a libation offering, let's take a, a pour offering, a drink offering, and let's top it off. And so here's your life being sacrificed to God, and he's saying, let's pour it on top. And what's that? His life. He says, if that's all that God does with my life, is he pours it out on your life. And you'd say, isn't that a waste? Isn't that a waste? And it says, no, it's not a waste, because that's part of that sacrifice. Paul says, if that's all that I'm used for, is you, I'm good with that. That's a joy for me. Uh, the sacrificial, the whole sacrificial system, oh, I didn't put that picture up there. The whole sacrificial system, sorry to be, uh, <laughs> the whole sacrificial system is um, something we're not all that used to, uh, but I remember one of the places that just burned into my mind, I remember uh, Mark talking about being in Israel uh, at our, our meeting, um, our members meeting, a couple of weeks ago, but uh, one of the places that we went to, one of the times we were there was Shiloh. Uh, what, a, what an experience that was. Uh, and there at Shiloh, you have the um, remnants, the remaining, the remaining, you have what's left over uh, from all the destruction that has taken place of the tabernacle uh, that was set up there. Um, and we're, you know, walking around looking at it, and it's just wide open, and it's just crazy. I mean, I think I literally stood in what at one point was the Holy of Holies. That shouldn't be allowed. Uh, that should be cordoned off, right? You can't go in there. Um, but I literally, I mean, I think, I think, I think we were, we're there, standing there. 
Uh, and then there's another spot uh, where it's like, what are these holes for? And it's like, that's where they would pour out their drink offering. And you just stand there looking at it, and it's, it's like, they would come and they would pour out the drink offering before the Lord right there, and it would just seep away into the ground. And you look at that, and on some level you go, isn't that a waste? Because, because this, this stuff, you know, whatever it is, it, it, it has use, right? People could, could eat this. People could drink this, right? I mean, it's like it's stuff that could be useful. And what are you doing? You're pouring it out before the Lord. And it's like, isn't that a waste? And doesn't that remind you of what happened with Jesus with the, the, oiled perfu- the perfumed oil, right? Uh, where it was poured out on Jesus, and the concept was it was a waste, That could have been sold and used for a practical purpose. But that, of course, is missing the point. The point is, Jesus is worth that worship. And I would say, dear friends, that's for us too. Your life used in worship, God's worth it. Paul is recognizing that. He's embracing it. Maybe you saw a picture of this guy, John uh, Shao. John Shao. Maybe you heard about him. Uh, he is a recent missionary um, who determined to go to a uh, particular island that was antagonistic to the gospel, so antagonistic that they um, uh, had made it clear they would kill people that came there um, to share uh, the gospel. And he became burdened, uh, he believed, by the Spirit of God uh, to go to them. And so he trained, he prepared. Um, He uh, studied um, and determined that he was going to go. And so he, uh, and and you you already know where this is going, right? Uh, And so he he did all those things and he began um, to put everything into his life to go. And as he went there, it became clear that they were not receptive to the gospel. Uh, They were shooting arrows at him. Um, and it was clear that he was not going to be welcomed, um, and he determined uh, in, his, in his life, he determined, um, I, am, I am going to do this even if it costs me my life. And now we might look at that and we might go, that's not good stewardship. <laughs> but man, was it good love. And so he wrote a lot of things. It was very clear. He was not looking. It doesn't seem. It was not looking to die. Uh, but he, he journaled and he wrote um, about this. Uh, he has many things that are recorded um, that he was um, wrestling with and even talking uh, you know, with, uh, with people who some were con- trying to convince him not to go and others were encouraging to him to go. Um, uh, several of his statements, he goes, you guys might think I'm crazy and all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus uh, to these people. Um, he added another entry right before he died, watching the sunset, and it's beautiful, crying a bit, wondering if it'll be the last sunset I see before being in the place where the sun never sets, tearing up a little. God, I don't want to die. Who will take my place if I do? Why did a little kid have to shoot at me today? His high-pitched voice still lingers in my head. Father, forgive them and any of the people on this island who try to kill me, and especially forgive them if they succeed. 
Uh, Lord, strengthen me as I need your strength and protection and guidance and all that you give and are. Whoever comes after me to take my place, whether it's after tomorrow or another time, please give them a double anointing and bless them mightily. Well, John, on November 16th, 2018, he went ashore on North Sentinel Island for the last time. Uh, and not much is known about what happened other than um, there were some fisher, fishermen that saw a body being buried uh, by the natives that were there. And John's life was over. And you look at that and go, was it worth it? Is that a valid sacrifice? Uh, and, and I would say, let every man be persuaded in his own heart, right? Uh, but I would say if, if John felt that God wanted him to go and to give, him, give his life, even though he did not fully believe that they were going to accept him, who am I to argue that that was not God? Uh, and you say, it's such a waste, though. It's just pouring it out. It's not worth it. Now I would say, isn't that what Paul did? Uh, and so Paul had a lot more success from a human standpoint, but at some level, Paul simply had his life poured out too. And he was ready for the Philippians. He said, if that's all that it is, that it gets poured out upon the sacrifice of your life, so be it. I'm embracing it. It'll be wonderful. You know, the story of missions is this story. And I would put it all under the category of simply living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Hey, let's take it all and let's boil it down and let's ask, us, ask ourselves this question. Am I willing to sacrifice for Jesus? And so are you asking me if I'm willing to die for him? I'm asking if you're willing to live for him. Romans 12.1. A living sacrifice. How then does Paul call the church to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Strive, by that I mean obey. Shine, by that I mean witness. Hold forth the word of truth. And then sacrifice. All as a response to what God has done and what God is doing in your life. As we consider these truths, uh, let me just ask you to wrestle with them in your own life. Friend, do you seriously, diligently obey God? Do you shine forth His truth? Both passively, by not seeking to you know, have the kind of life that is marked by various sins, including grumbling and complaining, but also actively by holding forth the, the word of truth. And then do you, are you willing, do you now, Will you sacrifice for him to embrace that joy that comes from living a life committed to the Lord?